Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. In this edition, the team talks about the fallout from the collapse of Kids Company, drugs in sport, and milk prices. Gene Smith from the New York Salon talks about policing and racism in America, one year on from Ferguson. And we have the latest mini lecture from University in One Day. But first, the news, and I'm joined, as usual, by my colleagues Claire Fox and David Bowden to talk about the events of the last couple of weeks. So let's start with Claire, and you wanted to talk about Kids Company. Yes, who would have ever thought that Kids Company, which was much sainted as a project, and Camilla Batmangeli, who everybody loved, uh, would have such horrendously bad press as they have received recently. Lots of interesting things have been written about this, so I'm not going to repeat all of the different aspects of it, but I think there are certain dangers as we deconstruct this because I now see that everybody is saying the problem with Kids Company is that they weren't regulated enough. Everybody is discussing financial mismanagement as though having reserves is the only way to go, and they're actually missing some of the much bigger and more worrying trends in relation to uh, what happened with Kids Company which was that her argument that we should listen to the children, that the children are always right, some of the uh, arguments that she put forward in relation to neuroscience and what others have described as neurobollocks are actually uh, not being challenged at all. In fact, what's happening is everybody says this project might be uh, problematic, but then they go on to say, however, the content of what she was doing is still going to be mainstream. So that it makes me nervous that what we're going to conclude from this whole saga is that eccentric, maverick leaders of organisations are going to be demonised. Unless you follow the state's rules about how you regulate a charity, this is going to be, uh, you know, you're going to be jumped upon from a great height. Whereas I think that what we really need to challenge is the content of Kids Company and why it became so popular to actually assume that early intervention in young people's lives was the way forward, that everything young people said should be believed and that there's a kind of sanctity around certain charities that you're not allowed to challenge. And until recently, if you dared ever criticise Kids Company, you're accused of endorsing or being an apologist for child neglect. And so I think they're much more uh, things that we should conclude from this. Yeah, and the fact that they're focused on the financial mismanagement side of it, which is is probably a, a reasonable thing to pick up on, but nobody has actually really taken on the kind of assumption that this is a kind of politically motivated. I mean, in terms of that, was that sort of sense that the Tories are attacking one of their their big social critics. So nobody's actually kind of questioned whether the role of an organisation such as Kids Company should have been as actively campaigning around uh, the kind of issues that it was, that it was you know, making a huge case for intervention and a kind of particular sort of brand of therapeutic intervention, rather than really focusing on providing a kind of core service. So there's both the kind of problematic role of the kind of outsourcing of this work to the charity sector, which is sort of fine in its own terms, but then this is also not a charity that seems to have been dedicated purely to that role, providing care for kids, that it had a very particular view of what the kind of care that it would provide. That I don't think a lot of people had 
fully kind of questioned or understood up until now. So it seems to me that there's also a bigger question about the kind of role of political campaigning within charities and what they view themselves to be had, which is kind of obscured by this discussion about both the kind of colourful figures involved and the, and the discussions of financial mismanagement. She does seem to have got a real pass, though, in terms of uh, a, a criticism almost entirely based on her own personality and a colourful outlook. It just seems, you know, that there doesn't seem to have been any questioning of what they were doing, how they were running themselves, and an awful lot of very, you know, very famous people, most notably the members of Coldplay, pumping an awful lot of money into it. Why, why do you think that people are like, just kind of like sucked in as I lose their sort of critical faculties around this? Well, I think that it, it is some of the things we refer to. I think that she didn't actually... Um, say anything very radical despite the fact that she's put forward this as as a radical thinker because she actually said all of the prejudices that we have today which is this view that there is widespread abuse happening that parents are dangerously irresponsible in how they rear their children I mean she she was one of the people who was most perniciously vicious about parents you know if you left child rearing to parents that that something terrible would happen if you didn't intervene early enough and you didn't love children there was this concept of love which which you know is a nice thought but it, it, effectively it was like we've got to love everyone or your brains will change i mean that was what she argued and this was kind of much discredited in academic circles view but it's actually really just echoed a lot of the prejudices that we have about child protection, child intervention, parents not being capable of rearing their own children. So she was a very, dare I say, useful idiot that that everybody jumped on. I mean, what's interesting is is that she was launched in, in many ways in the public sphere by Tony Blair, backed up by Gordon Brown, and then adopted uh, as the big society model by Cameron. So every single political party is compromised in relation to dealing with her. And then the final thing that I'd say in, in terms of uh, the Coldplay stuff and, and the kind of celebrities is that it is an indication of how a fashionable cause can almost just kind of escalate out of all... I mean, it's, it reminds me a little bit of Bono or, you know, some of the, the arguments in relation to development that happened around Bono, which was that you have a situation, or Jamie Oliver even with the food thing, which is celebrity endorsement... Everybody wants to feel good about themselves. You want to associate yourself with the children. And so everybody starts queuing up. As it happens, Coldplay look as though they're going to save her. They're saying they might even now invest and save kids' company as it speak. But leave it to the celebrities. It's the dangerous politicisation of, uh, of charities that I think is our concern, not whether celebrities have got eccentric, quirky views and hang out with eccentric, quirky people. OK, let's move on. David, do you want to talk about doping in sports? So what's happened? Well, there's been a... Um, on the back of a Sunday Times investigation, there have been allegations that there have been numerous suspicious test results that the World Doping Authority has not picked up on um, and has decided not to investigate for a variety of reasons, which, ranging from assumptions of oversight to possible corruption um, to questions within whether some uh, countries, particularly Eastern European and, and Russia, have been cooperating fully, although there are allegations across the, the board. Um, and lots of assertions that doping needs to be taken much more seriously than it is, that this is a scandal that is rocking sport. Now, I think it's probably been you know, a perfectly valid a uh, critique to be making that there are a, a rules that are not being followed and it's been you know some good investigative journalism which is revealing that i think what i find quite frustrating about the whole discussion is that nobody seems to 
to even kind of sort of question around any of the orthodoxies around doping. It's been said for a long time in sport that is generally a matter of the fact that people are to a degree much greater than we realise using performance enhancing drugs. It's not even very clear what the differentiation is between these performance enhancing drugs are um, and whether it's necessarily a bad thing. And it seems to me that we've now kind of pushed ourselves into a scenario where nobody has any kind of great reasons to believe that doping is out of sports. Um, almost certainly there are probably athletes out there at the moment asserting how they've been robbed of medals um, who are clean, who probably have been using performance-enhancing technologies they haven't detected. And nobody is questioning whether the kind of whole edifice and approach that we have to trying to wipe out this thing called doping, which nobody really understands, is actually good for sports in any way, shape or form. It's not a, a subject that I'm, I'm fully au fait with, but there are two things that I've noticed. One is that the whole of sport and modern sport it seems to me is based on enhancement you know there's great excitement about cycling in the UK but that's based on technology improving the kind of machines that you use when you are cycling and uh, as swimming champions it's often based on having access to the most fantastic uh, materials that make swimsuits that allow you to go that much faster now it seems to me they are enhancements and you know there's no level playing field in this uh, regard which is as if you're from certain countries you're unlikely to have the best engineers working on the greatest technological improvements and so that's a seemingly seemingly unfair advantage but somehow drugs sort of fills everyone with horror but enhancement happens all the time and it's accepted so I don't understand that it just seems a contradiction secondly I was distressed that you know a, a number of athletes have come out and they've revealed their own data they've they've made their records uh, available to show how clean they are and the inference is that you know if you've got nothing to hide why wouldn't you make your medical uh, data available and I've, I don't like this whole sort of transparency if you've got nothing to hide why wouldn't you do this because the inference is that should you want to have a private set of details about your body your medical information you don't want to reveal it to everyone in a defensive gesture that somehow you must be guilty of something and that kind of like holier than thou look how clean I am is also a kind of side of the this debate that you know there's too much standing on the moral high ground for me well I think the swimsuits is an interesting thing because eventually they did get rid of the high-tech swimsuits because it was just becoming so embarrassing that that people were just breaking world records every week wearing these these new swimsuits. But even that doesn't kind of cover the the, the panoply of different advantages that people living in certain countries and getting onto certain sort of uh, coaching schemes have. You know, obviously very very detailed data about everything they eat, how, every muscle that they use, how it's performed, uh, you know, their technique and everything. So even within the kind of parameters of you know the normal activity of swimming or cycling or whatever the, the the degree to which you can throw money at a problem and kind of get that extra five or ten percent that makes all the difference in sport um it is it's just so stark and also in terms of creating a level playing field the only way that we'll ever know if there's a level playing field is if everybody dopes because otherwise you there will always be people who go undetected and therefore you know it's just it's just not a fair situation to be in um, I, I suppose it, the, the thing that of course I want to react against is I do understand this idea of uh, human beings wanting to absolutely compete as themselves to improve humanity's performance in sport and you know the kind of a degree of practice and so on and so on. so I don't want to completely diminish the aspiration to want to 
not cheat, if, if you see what I mean. And I think there is something unsavoury about the notion of cheating. But I absolutely agree with you. I mean, uh, if you want the genies out of the bottle and so on, and it's the hypocrisy that, that drives me mad in relation to it. But the other thing is, is that this discussion actually in relation to the media there's some very good investigative journalism but there's an awful lot of trial by media I mean there really is I mean Camilla Batmangeli says it's trial by media as it happens that really is based on a, a woman who was courted by the media forever and now there's some investigative journalism in this instance the media seem absolutely determined that to kind of do over people there's all sorts of rumours and innuendo and I think that's uh, an unpleasant atmosphere and if there's something unsporting going on it's the way that everybody wants to destroy sport by this kind of campaign to clean it out yeah. that I think is is very dangerous uh, at the moment Okay, I want to m- move on to our final topic which is the ever exciting one of milk prices but it seems to have become sort of a bit of a core celebre over the last couple of weeks and so, so the, the background is that the, over the past year or so, milk prices for farmers in the UK seem to have fallen by about 25%. And for a lot of them, that means that they've slipped from just about being able to make a living out of it into um, losing money and losing quite a lot of money. Finally, they seem to have got their act together in a very un-British way, a very sort of French way. They've started protesting about it. So they've had you know sort of photo op where they will clear supermarket shelves of, of milk um, Apparently, in a very British way, they bought the milk rather than just like being French and just taking it away and then give, you know, selling it to customers outside. Or they've you know, blockaded distribution centres and, and, and things like that as well to kind of protest about the fact that one or two of the supermarkets in particular seem to be paying below the market price for, well, you know, or rather they are paying the market price for, rather than, than paying above the market price so that, that farmers can make a, make a living. Now, there's lots of particular reasons, which I won't go into here, why milk prices have fallen so sharply. But what's interesting is that this is the focus on dairy farmers rather than anybody else. The fact that we seem to be particularly fascinated with farmers and dairy farmers in particular. And it, I can only... But you know, think that that it um, reflects certain romanticism about the countryside. You know, that, that you know, we want to preserve something that's been disappearing for a very long time. Nobody really complains about oil prices falling, and you know, you would have thought that cheap anything would be a good thing compared to more expensive something. So there does seem to be this real romanticism about the the, the family farm and about the way that agriculture is done in the UK, and very little sentiment that actually what this indicates is that. We should be having bigger farms, more efficient farms, the way that they would do in many other countries. Um, well, actually, I, I've been um, discussing this with my mother over the weekend, who's out from good dairy farming stock. And um, the thing that I... And, and also, I listen to the Archers very regularly, so I feel like I'm an expert on the whole uh, issue of um, <laughs> agriculture. But... Um, I do think you're right that there's a certain sentimentality. The, the most important thing, I think, is it's absolutely fantastic if milk can be priced, you know, 10 pence a pint or whatever. The cheaper it is, the better for all of us. And that actually should mean the better for farmers as well. I mean, we can't have a situation whereby we have zombie farmers, i.e. that they're just artificially farming in a, a part in something that you know if if dairy can now produce milk very cheap then they need to diversify and they need to become different kinds of farmers the point is they own land they own uh, animals they need to think about 
modernizing the kind of uh, crops that they have. And one of the things that's also happened this week at the same time is that Scotland has announced it's going to ban trials of uh, GM crops. And it, that just strikes me as being, you know, what a backward step by Scotland. Because actually, what you'd really want is the dairy farmers to be thinking, great, now's the opportunity to diversify a bit and we're going to use our land to... I don't know, grow GM crops and make lots of money that way and so on and so forth. Now, of course, there will be individual farmers who will really suffer. And I, I don't want to underestimate what it's like when that happens. But like all industrial processes, um, despite the fact that Jeremy Corbyn wants to open the coal mines at the same time as cutting the uh, use of fossil fuel elsewhere, so it makes no sense, we can't go back and we want modern industrial farming techniques hopefully will make cheap food and drink for all of us the better and farmers i hope will survive but doing new and different kind of farming yeah it's also worth remembering the gm discussion that it's the farmers then get vilified really because you know they are the ones who are almost very happy to use gm modified crops and and technology in which case they're then kind of treated as people who are kind of corrupting the natural kind of sort of process of what's kind of going on here and there is a reality to which farming is and has historically been a hard job, and it's a fairly brutal job. Of that, it's a job that can one bad season can put you out of business anyway. So there's a kind of real kind of romanticisation around this whole discussion, which has got very little to do with the actual me- mechanics and realities of contemporary farming. It seems to me that it does seem to be that it captured people's kind of imagination. You know, precisely because it is this sort of sense of it was sort of British milk and it kind of being locally sourced and that can sort of speak to people in a sort of certain kind of conception in a way that it's more complicated about where we get everything else from. But, you know, at the very least, the milk is not something that we ship in from abroad. And so that's why it seems like it has this kind of particular potency as an issue. Yeah, just just, just something up on that. I read an interview with Patrick Holden, who's the ex-head of the uh, Soil Association, which is a pro-organic food lobby group but he's also a dairy farmer and he was talking about how he was coping with this these low prices and he was saying you know obviously i've got my other income on the side which is very handy for me and what what we're also doing is we're turning some of our milk now into cheese and that we're selling it ourselves and it does very well because it's got a great story <laughs> and i thought that's i don't want cheese to have a story i just want it to be cheese <laughs> but i but i think just on the sentimentality it's not that different to the kind of NHS. And I think that if you think about that Olympic, that famous Olympic opening scene, it kind of started off with a kind of dairy farms and so on, and then it moved into the NHS. And it's kind of this romantic vision of our past. But, you know, dairy farming, and the point that Dave made to stress is getting up and milking the farm. Listen to the archers. It's a tyranny. I mean, getting up early and, 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 and uh, milking the, the cows and so on, this, you know, this is like being a hard, hard existence for people. And the more that we can eradicate people having to spend time doing it, and the cheaper we can make the products of those cows, the better. So, I really think that there. Oh, sorry, there's just one thing. There is a, at the moment. There's a campaign by celebrities again. They've featured a bit today, who are saying, "I would pay more for my milk if it helped British farmers." And you think that is a subsidy too far? I mean, it's kind of like, well, you might want to because you're a celebrity, but the rest of us don't, thank you very much. And it's like a kind of welfare dependency, but for farmers, it's not on. OK, well, we could discuss this topic at length, but that would just be milking it. And on that terrible pun, thank you very much. That was the news. (laughs) 
Earlier this week, a state of emergency was declared in the town of Ferguson, Missouri, after protests marking the first anniversary of the death of Michael Brown, who was shot by a police officer. Questions of policing and race have come up time and time again in the past year in America. Is this just a case of a racist justice system finally getting the attention and criticism it deserves, or do the protests reflect other concerns in American society? Joining me to discuss the issue is Jean Smith, director of New York Salon, a sister organisation of the Institute in America. Although she's a Brit, Jean has lived in Brooklyn, New York for the past 15 years and holds dual UK-US citizenship. She's organising a debate on the subject at this year's Battle of Ideas called After Ferguson, Policing and Race in America. So Jean, remind us what happened in Ferguson a year ago. Uh, Well, a, a year ago, you may remember that a white cop shot dead a black teenager, Michael Brown, in Ferguson, Missouri, which is in the Midwest. What appears to have happened is that Michael Brown reached into the officer's police car, but the truth is we'll never know what actually happened. The shooting of Michael Brown sparked protests um, in Ferguson and across the US and internationally. And it's very interesting that the reaction of the local police department was, well, I guess you could call it a complete overreaction. They responded with armoured vehicles, tear gas, uh, rubber bullets, all things that were given to the cities and towns in the US post 9-11 by the federal government to be used against uh, supposed terrorist attacks. So you have a complete overreaction by the police, which then uh, turned a what initially was a peaceful protest into a complete breakdown of civic order. And some people saw that this was a sign of strength by the local police department, but you could look at it another way and say that this was a complete breakdown of control, because usually the way the uh, the police in America deal with these things is, you know, we have community policing, we have crowd control, etc. So I, so I think, you know, there's a, the, there was a combination of factors that led to this, but basically it was the shooting of Michael Brown that sparked a spontaneous process that was bubbling under the surface for a long time. Um, and Michael Brown hasn't been the only case in the past years. It seems like almost every time a black man gets shot in America now, it, it becomes a major headlines news. You know, we've seen Eric Garner and Freddie Gray and people like that. So, so, so why is that going on now? Because it's not like this is a completely new process. I mean, it's, you know, it's been well known that black men get shot by white police officers for many years. Why has it become a, a big issue now? Well, I think it's important to remember that white people get shot as well. Something like 44% of people that, according to the uh, Federal Bureau's uh, research, 44% of people that are shot by the police and have been shot by the police over the past 30 years have been white. But, you know, clearly that leaves 56% and only 13% of the population is black. So black people are shot disproportionately. But I think when we're looking at these issues, it's important to look at what's specific Because everything in the United States, and it's true in the UK as well, is now viewed through this cultural prism. But I think we need to look at the specifics of Ferguson in order to really understand what's going on and then relate that to the broader context. So if you look at uh, Ferguson, in, in many ways Ferguson is untypical of the types of communities that black people, poor black people live in. So it's, um, it, it's a suburb, 
25 years ago it was three quarters white whereas now it's three quarters black and what you don't have in Ferguson is a uh, you have really a leadership vacuum and blacks are not represented in positions of authority so for example the mayor is white or was white at the at the time of the uh, the original protests although now they've appointed an interim black mayor the majority of the police force were white and the majority of the elected leaders in fact all of the elected leaders were white so you have that uh, leadership vacuum but you also have a situation where for many many years the policy of the Ferguson police force has been to arrest poor people of which because of the legacy of racism in the US black people are are disproportionately you know make up those groups to harass people for petty offences and as a result of, of, of this, um, you know, uh, poor black people are fined. And th- this is, you know, it's, it's even boasted that this is a way of building up the uh, revenues in, in the coffers in the, of the Ferguson um, City Department. So you have a situation where, on the one hand, you have this leadership vacuum. And on the other hand, you have constant harassment of black people by the Ferguson police force. But I think it's important to recognise that, and some people would say, well, maybe we need more black policemen, maybe we need more black officials. And obviously in a situation where the majority of the people are black, you would expect that to be automatically the case. But this type of thing happens in other cities as well, where um, black people really are in political control. So if you look at cities like Baltimore, Philadelphia, Detroit, and you know other cities throughout the US where you have urban black populations, these are um, cities where you have black political control and you have the same problem. Uh, and it's not just white cops shooting black people. You have black cops shooting black people as well. And you have white and black cops shooting white people so i think that the uh you know the problem is much more complicated obviously in ferguson it's not surprising that people interpret that through a racial prism because you have a white cop and a black teenager who was killed Uh, but given the fact that in cities that are, are dominated by black political control and you do have large numbers of black police officers you have the same issues clearly something something different is happening this is not 1960 so this is a narrative this kind of simplistic let's let's say narrative of white cops and black people getting shot so that that's become a kind of being picked up as a kind of identity narrative or as a, a kind of as viewed as sort of the repetition of of the, the 1960s all over again and then you've got the police also kind of joining this culture war if you like because you know when there was two police officers shot in New York Ramos and Lou suddenly police were coming from all over the country to be at their funeral so what do you make of that well, I think that's very interesting, and I think what it points to is the breakdown of trust and the, in some ways, the fear on both sides. Because if you look at, um, you know, the shootings of Wenjan Lu and Rafael Ramos, there was a national mobilisation of police departments across the country, and people, uh, police officers, even came from Canada to protest 
not at white cops being killed, but at minority cops, off-duty cops being killed by a black man who said he wanted revenge for the killings of black people uh, by, uh, by, by the police force. And I think that, you know, what, what was going on there was very interesting. If you listen to the language of the police officers that spoke, it was very much that they felt under siege. And there is a lot of sympathy for the police in terms of the, you know, the, the difficulties or the perceived difficulties they have of policing high, what are perceived as high crime areas. And I, I think it also points to the fact that the police do not feel supported by the American elite. So you may remember a couple of years ago when Trayvon Martin was killed in Florida by a, uh, actually a, a Latino citizen. President Obama came out and said, if I had a son, he could look like Trayvon Martin. You have a situation where Mayor de Blasio, who is a white, the white mayor of, of New York, came out and said, well, you know, my son, who is of mixed parentage because his, his mum is black, I've, I've had conversations with, about, with him about how to behave if he's stopped by the police in New York. And, um, you, you know, I think that given things, things uh, like this, I think that the police force feel that they're, they're unsupported on both sides. They're unsupported by the elite. They, uh, they lack support among citizens and um, you know it's a bizarre situation where you have the police behaving like victims and earlier in the year you may remember the the head of the FBI came out uh, when he was doing his address at Georgetown University and said we have a real problem in the US in that there is a breakdown of trust between law enforcement and American citizens and particularly citizens of, of colour, but all citizens, uh, you know, in fact, which speaks to the confusion that's going on and the lack of leadership by the, by the American elite. And how does this fit into all the wider context of the, of the American justice system in general? I'm sure quite a few people who would say this is a throwback to the 60s would point to, for example, the disproportionate number of black people in prisons and say, well, you know, th- th- this is clearly a racist justice system. I mean, what, what truth is there in that? Well, I think you have to look at what's changed because one of, one of the reasons we wanted to put on this session at the Battle of Ideas this year is because I think that Ferguson really threw a spotlight on the issue of racism in the United States. And it's definitely the case that we have unfinished business because on the one hand, a lot has changed. And I think for people to say, well, this is a, a legacy of American um, of America's past, it's just a little bit lazy and does a disservice to the gains of the civil rights movement. So if you look at the time, um, you know, in the 60s and the time of Martin Luther King, black people were systematically discriminated against. Prejudice against black people was widespread. The legal system discriminated against black people and um, black people were denied access to the vote and housing and violence by the state and racist citizens was widespread and acceptable. It's a very different situation today. Today, widespread prejudice does not exist. Uh, There's much more tolerance 50 years on. You know, you have a situation where 
There is a black middle class in the in the United States. We have 47 members of Congress and we have a black president. So clearly something has changed. But then at the same time, as you rightly point out, black people are more likely uh, statistically to be shot as a proportion of the population by cops than white people. And something like 39% of the prison population is black, whereas black people only form 13% of the population. They're more likely to get larger jail offences for the same, um, you know, for the same offences. And black poverty is twice what it is for white people. So clearly something is not working. And we need to look at why is that uh, when it's the case that you know, there is no cultural affirmation for racism in the United States. When there is a violation of a black person's civil rights, it, it provokes outrage because it's no longer acceptable. So we have to ask the question, given that that's the, uh, that's the popular point of view, why is it the case that black people are still disproportionately um, you know, represented in terms of the prison population and disproportionately represented amongst the poor. Finally, what's, what's the aim of your session? I suppose you've mentioned some of that already and uh, who have you got speaking on the, your panel? Well, I think our aim is to interrogate what's changed because I think that if, uh, one of the important things and one of the, the most important motivations behind the session is that if you look at the time of Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King was campaigning for equality, you know, the slogan, I am a man. And he focused, uh, and his campaign focused very much on what we as citizens have in common. And he wanted American black citizens to have the same access to the American dream as white people. And I think that we're in a position now where, in many sense, people have given up on the American dream. They've given up on material progress and growth, the type of things that could actually bring people out of poverty and provide people with the, um, you know, with the opportunities and life chances to give them a more optimistic view of, of, of their life and to give them more autonomy. But at the same time, um, because of the legacy of, of, of racism um, in, in the United States and because, I would argue, of the legacy of identity politics, there's still this focus on what separates us and cultural differences, which ends up not just dividing us, but also ends up blaming black people for their position. So people say, well, there's a problem of absent fathers, there's a problem of, you know, low expectations, there's a problem of the, you know, the drug culture and the prison culture amongst black people, instead of focusing on practical things that we could do to change those things and uh, things that we can do to stop seeing black people as different and go back to Martin Luther King's universal idea that we, you know, that we all have in common, that we're all equal and we all should have, uh, be able to play an equal, equal role in society. So we have a very, um, you know, internationally known panel for this session, which I'm very excited about. We have James Campbell from the University of Leicester, 
who's a specialist in American history, and particularly the history of slavery, race, and the criminal justice system, both in the United States and in uh, Jamaica. We have Anna Hartnell, who uh, from Burbeck, uh, the, uh, which is part of the University of London, who specializes in contemporary literature. And her research really focuses on the intersection between literature and politics with a special emphasis on race and representation. And her recent work is looking at New Orleans, which you may remember was devastated by Hurricane Katrina a few years ago. And she's just looking at the way the investment since then in New Orleans is remapping the racial geography of the area. Then we have Kunli Oludi, who's the um, director of Voice for Change England and the creative director of Rebot Productions. And um, I'm sure many people will know that Voice for Change England is uh, an organization of 360 black community organizations and charities covering everything from criminal justice to migrant rights. And then we have Kevin Yule from the University of Sunderland, who's written extensively on the civil rights movement, particularly during the Richard Nixon period and the, you know, the way Richard Nixon was instrumental in bringing in affirmative action policies. And he's also looked at the development of race relations in the interwar period and the, uh, the whole issue of uh, gun control and the, uh, and the role of African-Americans in, in terms of that debate. So it's a very illustrious panel and I'm sure that we'll have a very interesting discussion and a discussion that, uh, which brings out a lot of differences between the speakers. Okay, thank you very much. Well, that debate happens on Saturday the 17th of October, first thing in the morning at 10am. Thank you very much for coming in to talk about uh, the issue of race and policing in America, Jean Smith. Thank you. In July, the Institute held its first University in One Day at Goodenough College in London. In this mini-lecture, Steve Murphy, Head of Philosophy at Easter College, asks what is Enlightenment and finds the answer in the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. So Kant um, was born on 22nd of April 1724 in a town uh, called Konigsberg uh, in East Prussia, which apart from the occasional um, journeys into surrounding towns, he never really left for the rest of his 80 years of, of life. Um, this was a lively and flourishing trading town. Uh, Kant was from a modest background within it with a strong Protestant upbringing and um, was by temperament a sociable, outgoing person with uh, very meticulous habits. You could apparently set your watch by the time that he took his walk in the afternoons. He was an outstanding intellect recognised from a very early age. Uh, he put forward a theory of the origin of the universe, later elaborated by the French scientist Laplace, uh, and sought to give a philosophical foundation to Newton's scientific theories. Uh, in 1781... He published his Critique of Pure Reason, uh, initiating a revolution in philosophy that he compared to one that we just heard about with Copernicus in astronomy. Uh, the pamphlet What is Enlightenment followed in 1784. Um, so during his lifetime, um, revolutions, as we've heard in, in France and America, had enshrined the rights of the individual. This was a novel development, and it's at the heart of Kant's political and moral thought. This spirit of liberty, um, depicted in the slightly later um, painting by Delacroix, uh, Liberty Leading the People, 
this, this takes on a different character in Kant's time. So in earlier revolutions, progressive ideas were still framed often in religious terms, uh, whereas these um, revolutions took a more secular outlook. We've heard a bit about what the Enlightenment is now. We know um, from previous speeches that this was the uh, dismantling of old worldviews, um, starting with scientific revolutions in the 16th and 17th centuries and culminating in a series of revolutions in philosophy, science and politics. Um, so this involved overturning traditional sources of understanding based on religion, superstition, myth, miracles. These came to be replaced with an understanding based on what was open to all. So the evidence of the senses, and we've talked about the natural light of reason before. So applying reason not only to nature, but to man and society. So this sets this apart from past periods. And this engenders a confidence and an optimism about using reason to control nature and to improve human life, which again is novel. So where the inspiration for the Enlightenment was partly the new physics, which was mechanistic, um, in other words, saw nature as a, a machine, this raises a problem. If nature is entirely governed by mechanistic causal laws, then how is there room for freedom, a soul, or anything but matter in motion? This threatened the traditional view that morality requires freedom. Uh, we must be free in order to choose what is right over what is wrong, because otherwise we can't be held responsible. It also threatened the traditional religious belief that a soul can survive death or be uh, resurrected in an afterlife. So modern science, the pride of the Enlightenment and the source of its optimism about the powers of human reason, threatened to undermine traditional moral and religious beliefs that free rational thought was expected to support. This was the main intellectual crisis of the Enlightenment, and this was what Kant's work was a response to. Some uh, familiar themes, uh, this was from the Critique of Pure Reason, where you see that Kant says that ours is the age of criticism, to which everything must submit. Religion, through its holiness, uh, seeks to exempt itself from it, but in this way they excite a just suspicion against themselves and cannot lay claim to that unfeigned respect that reason grants only to that which has been able to withstand its free and public examination. Question everything, is what Kant was saying here. And this is very much the project that he was engaged in with his three uh, critiques. We've heard um, and talked about Kant's famous answer to this question, that enlightenment, as he defines it, his, his answer is enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-incurred immaturity. Uh, immaturity is the inability to use one's own re uh, reason or understanding without the guidance of another. Um, I'm going to throw in a couple of quotes from the essay because I think uh, they, they do strike home today. Uh, I think there's something very resonant in, in what Kant is saying. Three things, which again were touched on earlier on, characterise Kant's approach here, and three things that run up against some of the things that we're uh, faced with today. Uh, a belief in autonomy, a belief in universal truth, uh, and a belief in the importance and centrality of the human, uh, I think characterise Kant's work as a whole. So what do I mean by these three things and how does Kant uh, illustrate them? I think autonomy is, is the big one, and, and some of the discussions, particularly the seminar I came into earlier on, was uh, talking about this quite usefully. Literally, this means self-rule, so the idea of moral independence uh, of the individual this is central, as we've seen, to enlightenment thought. Uh, and we've also seen that Kant believes this is self-incurred. So this immaturity is self-incurred if its cause is not uh, a lack of understanding, but a lack of resolution and courage to use it without the guidance of another. So the motto of enlightenment is therefore 
sapere aude, have the courage to use your understanding, dare to, dare to know, sometimes this is uh, translated as. Um, and I think this next quote illustrates something which uh, kind of rings true today, and I'm not sure how um, this strikes you. But Kant says it's so convenient to be immature. If I have a book to have understanding in place of me, a spiritual advisor to have a conscience for me, a doctor, perhaps Jamie Oliver, to judge my diet for me, um, I do not need to make any efforts at all. Uh, I need not think so long as I can pay. Others will soon enough take over this tiresome job from me. You don't have to go far to see um, all sorts of advice for life, um, as something that we were perhaps previously considered um, to be able to get on with on our own devices. Um, but no, apparently now we, we need advice from all quarters to be told how we should be living, uh, even in those basic aspects of uh, what we eat and drink, how we parent and so on and so on. So um, Kant asks, well, what, what holds back this, um, this progress, uh, this, this enlightenment? He says, well, those guardians who have kindly taken it upon themselves, the work of supervision, will soon see to it that by far the largest part of mankind should consider the step forward to maturity not only as difficult, but as highly dangerous. So if you do something out of the ordinary, if you think a particular way, if you question a particular kind of authority, that's seen as dangerous. That's seen as a threat somehow. Um, this could be perhaps back in those days to traditional authorities, perhaps these days to the wider community, to the vulnerable. To I'll leave that for you to kind of think through perhaps later on in discussions. So enlightenment then is about asserting our independence and allowing individuals to grow as we exercise our judgment. Um, a, a later liberal philosopher, John Stuart Mill, uh, compared the mental powers to the physical. He said they grow stronger with use. The more you make judgments, the better a judge you become. And uh, this, I think, is central to what Kant is saying. So, according to Kant, not everyone uh, has succeeded in this enlightenment um, process. Um, only, only a few. Um, but he thinks that there is uh, more of a chance of an entire public enlightening itself uh, he's quite optimistic on this point, where he says, well, actually, for reform of this kind, for enlightenment, all that is needed is freedom. So the freedom in question is the most innocuous form of all, freedom to make public use of one's reason in all matters. This has been characterised by some later philosophers as uh, something called negative liberty. So the liberty to kind of do what you want, so free from the interference of experts or the government or the state. You should be allowed to make your own choices and encouraged, indeed, to make your own choices because that way you become a better judge. But you're always going to run up against people. You're always going to run up against people, uh, as Kant's saying here, I hear on all sides um, the cry, don't argue, the officer says, don't argue, get on parade. Um, the tax official, don't argue, pay. The clergyman, don't argue, believe. Again, I'm sure there are modern equivalents that we could think of here. So, Kant has a, a faith in, in the public. I think that's clearly expressed. That if you let people be, if you let them exercise their own decisions, they will become enlightened. That, I think, is, is part and parcel of this optimism of enlightenment thinking. So the second theme that I'll mention, I'll mention the last two briefly, universal truth. Uh, Kant believed that you could come to certain principles uh, and you could agree those universally. Again, this was part of the enlightenment uh, project of seeing 
um, the world operating in a certain way for everyone. It's not a case of your truth versus my truth. There are certain principles that we can agree for everyone. So underlying this idea that, uh, is Kant's approach to morality where um, he thinks that there's something called the categorical imperative, the central idea of his morality. And, and this is um, that, that moral acts are the ones which can be formulated in principles applicable to everyone. An easy way of putting Kant's morality is don't make an exception for yourself. Okay, so you should be doing the thing that could be applicable to everyone. Now, this is something which he um, it places a great stress on, and, and that's tied into the ideas of uh, human dignity that, that will come up in a, in a second. Um, so this isn't a dogmatic approach to truth. He's not saying there is one truth that I've worked out that I can give all of you in a book. He's saying that we can work towards that because we all have this capacity to reason. So this expresses that idea that enlightenment is not a static state, but a continuous process, an ongoing liberation from superstition and prejudice. This echoes one of Kant's contemporaries, Lessing, who said that what matters is not so much to possess the truth as to pursue it. So where does this lead? Kant did not see human beings as... Um, as machines, and I think this is where there's an interesting tension. He didn't think that people were just uh, complicated biological or mechanical uh, instruments. He, he thought there was something different and more dignified about human beings. And I think this is um, illustrative of, of what he's talking about. So he says, So once the germ on which nature has lavished most care, man's inclination and vocation to think freely has developed it gradually reacts upon the mentality of the people who thus gradually become increasingly able to act freely. To think freely to start, then you become more able to act freely. So eventually it even influences the principles of governments, which find that they can themselves profit by treating man, who is more than a machine, in a manner appropriate to his dignity. There is something essential about humanity. All human beings have certain... Uh, ineradicable features which make them valuable. And I think this is the fundamental message of uh, enlightenment for Kant. So I wanted to just say one or two things for you to think about. In the spirit of enlightenment, in the spirit of questioning Kant, uh, for later discussions perhaps, what about what's going on in Kant? So if, if there's nothing but matter in motion, as this new science suggested, if we are just physical, material things, how can there be freedom or morality? Kant gave his own answer to this, but we don't have time to go into that. Uh, at a time when the aim of government was being rethought from serving religious ends to promoting human happiness, Kant disagreed with both. Why might that be? What else might be valuable uh, in terms of the, the central principles of society? And finally, was Kant right to say that the barrier to enlightenment is a lack of courage? Is it just a case of a kind of laziness on our part that we're not enlightened? What else might be involved there? So those are some questions for you to think about, and I'll wrap up there. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. For more information about our podcasts or to subscribe, go to instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast.